the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. The bond that you have in Christ will sometimes make for stronger relationships than those within even your own family. You know the old saying that blood is thicker than water? Talking about how, you know, family obviously has a closer relationship than people who are non-family. Blood is thicker than water, but the spirit is thicker than blood. And you will find sometimes that you have even a closer relationship with people in Christ than you do with some members of your own family. If you're following Jesus, at some point you're going to face opposition. It's to be expected, but that doesn't mean it will be easy. Today, Pastor Gary will share that some of this opposition may come from people close to you, even your own family. They may not understand why you want to devote your life to Christ, but don't let that stop you. Keep sharing the gospel and keep praying for them. And lean into your church family, your brothers and sisters in Christ, for support. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 3, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. The crowds, by and large, are going to be the same ones running after Jesus to see what he can do for them, who will be shouting for his crucifixion in a few chapters. So don't make this all about what God's going to do for you. Make sure it's all about who he is. And he heals many. It says in verse 11, even the demons who knew that he is the Son of God, they cried out, but Jesus silenced them because he, 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 he didn't want to be made an earthly king by the masses. He came to do much more than that. And by this premature revelation of his identity, and because the demons know things spiritually, though they don't submit to him, here these demons were possessing people, and these people were going around, hey, you're the son of God. And Jesus was like, shh, shh, shh. You know, don't say, don't. He does not want to be revealed prematurely. And, uh, and so he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Well, verse 13 says that Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12. This is Mark's recording of the choosing of the 12 apostles. And he designated them apostles from the Greek word apostello, meaning to the sent ones, to send forth. He's going to send them out, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Uh, To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Uh, Andrew, Philip, 
Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Very eclectic group of of guys. You see um, interesting selection here that Jesus chooses. You see two sets of brothers, by the way, uh, among the twelve. There are two sets of brothers. James and John are brothers, and uh, as well as Peter and Andrew. Uh, James and John, it's cute because Mark tells us that, that Mark's the one who tells us that uh, these were named, Jesus nicknamed them Boanerges, sons of thunder, how it translates, because these guys were hotheads. These guys, they just would mouth off and they would do things and they'd say things first and think about it later. And one of the things that the Gospels records, I think it's kind of a humorous story, it's in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus and his disciples are going through the region of Samaria and they ask for lodging among the Samaritans and the Samaritans are like, well, you guys are Jews, we're not going to give you lodging. And James and John come to Jesus and say, should we pray fire from heaven to smoke them? That's the kind of guys they were. So you have them as brothers, James and John, you have Peter and Andrew, you have uh, some opposing political views in the group because you have Matthew, who's Levi the tax collector, he was a friend of Rome, at least using Rome for a profession, and then you have also in the group Simon the Zealot. Now, being a zealot means he was a part of a political sect in the day. The zealots were anti-Rome, anti-taxes, wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And Jesus chooses a pro-Roman guy, Matthew, and, and an anti-Roman guy, Simon the Zealot. And he says, you two are going to come together and you're going to be part of my group. It's a very interesting mix that he has here. I envision Simon the Zealot because to be a zealot, you were like a freedom fighter, okay? This is, Simon's a guy that painted his face blue, got on a horseback and was yelling, freedom, everywhere he went, okay? That's that guy, all right? Simon the Zealot. And he just wants freedom and freedom from Rome. And Jesus puts him together with Matthew. You also see here a doubter, of course, Thomas. And uh, you also see a betrayer with Judas Iscariot. And uh, these are the 12. And God's going to change the world with these 12. It's amazing to think what God can do with any of us. And he chooses these 12. And uh, he'll, he'll turn the world upside down. Well, verse 20 then says that then Jesus entered a house... And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. This is very fascinating, isn't it? Because uh, here Jesus is, he's having dinner at a house, probably still here in Capernaum. And uh, the crowds are pressing that they can't even eat, can't even have a private moment on their own. And even Jesus' own family are getting very concerned about him. Now, if you have a King James Bible, it says his friends, when his friends heard about this, they went to take charge of him. Uh, but, but when you link verse 21 with verse 31, which tells us then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, uh, the, the better translation is that this is his family. And they're going to arrive in verse 31. And they want to take charge of him because they think that he's out of his mind. Now, why would his own family think that he's out of his mind? Because perhaps with the exception of of his mother, certainly his brothers did not believe that he was Messiah because it tells us in John 7, verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. 
they thought he was whacked. They thought, you, you, you know, you're our older brother. We've grown up with you. And now all of a sudden you're, you're doing all these powerful things and you're going around proclaiming to be Messiah and we think something's wrong. Now, if you'll jump ahead to Mark chapter 6, it tells us who his brothers are by name. Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. It says, isn't this the carpenter, isn't, his, isn't this Mary's son, and the brother of, the, these are the, the half-brothers of Jesus, uh, they have the same mother, not the same father, brother uh, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, aren't his sisters, plural, here with us, and they took offense at him. So you have listed here four brothers by name. And you have sisters, plural, so there are at least two. So Jesus has at least six siblings. So growing up in that home, there were at least seven kids, and maybe more if sisters represent more than just two. But they're unnamed. The sisters are unnamed. And initially, Jesus' own family did not believe in him, did not accept him as Savior. Now, this will change. This will change at least in part because James, on this list... Uh, James will become the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he will be the one to write the epistle of James. That's the half-brother of Jesus. And then Judas, his name here, this is obviously not Judas Iscariot, this is a different Judas, who's also nicknamed Jude. And he will write the epistle Jude, the last book just before Revelation. So a couple of Jesus' brothers end up, they, they do end up uh, believing in him, and a couple of them end up writing epistles that get uh, uh, placed here in the New Testament canon of Scripture. Uh, but initially, they did not believe in him, and they thought that he was just out of his mind, going around doing these things and saying these things, and so they came to take charge of him. They were going to, you know, ask for guardianship in a court and they wanted to come over and take him and take him home and give him some pink pills and and put a blanket around him and put him to bed or something because they they think this guy is just he's losing it he's out of his mind well back here in chapter 3 verse 22 and it says and the teachers of the law who came down from jerusalem said he is possessed they go even further he is possessed by beelzebub by the prince of demons he is driving out demons see here was the conflict they knew that he was doing powerful miracles And yet they didn't want to attribute the power to God because then they'd have to admit that he is God. So they attribute his power to demons because they didn't want to believe that he's Messiah. Well, how are we going to explain all the miracles? Well, then we're going to say that he's doing this by by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Now, Beelzebub is just basically a name by this time that came to be equated with Satan. Originally, you can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 1, Beelzebub in the Old Testament is mentioned as a god of the Philistines. And Beelzebub loosely translates Baal, Zebub. Baal is the word for God, a false god. And Zebub, now there's a difficulty in the translation. It can mean flies. It can mean Beelzebub meaning Lord of the flies. But more literally, it's a, it's a happy way of saying Lord of the dung because flies would always hang around dung. And so the real translation is Lord of the dung, Lord of the flies. Now, these, this was a God that the Philistines worshipped. Don't ask me why you'd want to worship a God who's a God of the dung. I don't know. But in 2 Kings chapter 1, there's a curious story that happens there. King Ahaziah, uh, who is king of Israel at the time, the Bible says in 2 Kings 1, falls through the lattice of 
his palace. He's the king of Israel. He's a wicked king, the Bible says. And he, and he maybe he was, you know, a, a, a large guy. I don't know. He just falls through the lattice of his palace and he ends up crashing down the floor below and he sustains a, an injury. And so he dispatches messengers to go inquire of the Philistine god Beelzebub to see if he's going to recover from his injuries. And on the way, the Lord, an angel of the Lord appears and speaks to Elijah the prophet and says, go to King Ahaziah and rebuke him for this. And Elijah gets word to and eventually in person goes to King Ahaziah and says, is, is the God of Israel not God enough that you have to go consult a false God, the, the Lord of the flies, the Lord of the dung, the God of the Philistines as to whether or not you're going to recover? And because you're doing this kind of thing, I have a word from the Lord for you, you're going to die. And he dies. But Beelzebub becomes a derogatory term here. It becomes a, a title of contempt that the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of the day, are using to Jesus. We don't want to admit that the power comes from God, so we have to explain this power. So we're going to say it comes from Satan, Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. And so verse 23, so Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. He's going to point out, he's going to expo- expose their faulty logic. He says this, how can Satan drive out Satan? You know, if you're, if you're attributing my power to Satan, but I'm driving out demons, I'm freeing people from demonic possession, doesn't, this doesn't make sense. It's a little incongruous here. Because you, you're saying that I'm, uh, that I'm Satan, and yet I'm driving out demons. Okay? Satan and demons are kind of supposed to work together. And here I am working against. So he says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. These are good principles too, by the way. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Well, one of the beauties about going straight through the Bible, verse by verse, is that you come to these kind of verses that have completely rattled a lot of people over the years, Christians who want to know, what is the unpardonable sin? What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is Jesus talking about here? And then this is where it rattles people because they want to know, have I committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin? So, you note-takers, what is the unpardonable sin? What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, in order to understand blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we first have to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I want to point out to you two verses that Jesus gives us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says this first in John 16, 8. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he adds also in John 15, 26, that he, that is the Holy Spirit, will testify about me, that is Jesus. And so these two things, Jesus says, okay, look, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin in regards to their own sinfulness and uh, to convict about righteousness and judgment and also to bear witness about the true identity of who Jesus Christ is. In other words, 
When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, you come to faith in Jesus because of the work of the Holy Spirit. That He has, the Holy Spirit has both convicted you of sin. You come to that place where you realize, I'm a sinner, I don't even understand necessarily what the word means in its entirety, but I know enough that I'm not right with God. And a person gets convicted about sin. In response to that, you acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, and, and who bears witness to your heart about that? That's the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit begins to testify of Jesus in your heart. And those things together then make for a relationship with Jesus. So when you look at what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin then is to reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and who prompts us to accept Jesus Christ and Lord and Savior. As, as Lord and Savior. That is the eternal sin. In other words, when you reject the work of the Spirit who convicts of sin and who testifies to Jesus being Savior, that will eventually be an unpardonable sin. Now, why do I say eventually? Because at any point before you die, you can respond to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You can accept him as Lord and Savior. The only unpardonable sin is to reject Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's to reject Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, the ultimate blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not only to reject Jesus as Lord and Savior, but in this context, to attribute the ministry of the Holy Spirit to demonic things. So, you know, the, the Pharisees here are going even beyond, we don't accept you as Savior. They're actually even attributing the work of Jesus uh, to uh, demonic things. And, um, and, and Jesus is basically warning them here. Now, I, I don't think they've actually, uh, you read different commentaries and it says, you know, Jesus wouldn't be warning them if they'd actually committed this. Uh, so maybe he's giving them here a fair warning to let them know what they are doing. But he's saying this in response to the fact That's the way this section ended there in verse 30. He's saying in response to the fact that they were saying that he has an evil spirit. Well, verse 31, Jesus, uh, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Now, again, Jesus' hometown was Nazareth, uh, so that's where they would have come from. So to get to Capernaum from Nazareth, it's about a 30-mile hike. So they've come here to take him away in a padded wagon, and um, they send in some, some people because the, the house is so crowded, they can't get in to see him. And so somebody makes his way in and says, hey, Jesus, you, your, your mother's out here, and your brothers, they've arrived. And verse 33, Jesus says, who are my mother and, and my brothers? And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, he wasn't saying this to be disparaging towards his own family, but he was saying something that's important for us to recognize, and that is that the bond that you have in Christ will sometimes make for stronger relationships than those within even your own family. You know the old saying that blood is thicker than water, talking about how, you know, family obviously has a closer relationship than people who are non-family, blood is thicker than water, but the Spirit is thicker than blood. And you will find sometimes that you have even a closer relationship with people in Christ than you do with some members of your own family, okay? 
Thanksgiving. You know what I'm talking about? Okay? Some of you are like, yeah, you know, I was hanging out with some family members. I feel closer with some church people than I do with some of them. That's because you have a bond in Christ. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, it, it has to always be that way, where you should feel stronger with people in Christ than you do with your own family members. Sometimes it's the best, best of both worlds. You have family members who love Christ, and you feel close to them and, and have a, lo- a loving and a strong bond. But there are, there's the reality that in Christ uh, there can be a stronger tie and a stronger bond with people that you know in the Lord than sometimes members of your own physical family, a spiritual family can be even a stronger bond than a physical family. Well, um, into chapter 4, look, I'm just going to read the parable, but I'm not going to take time to go through it because um, I won't do justice to it in the five minutes we have left. So let me just read through it in in chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Jesus teaches a parable of the sower. He's actually going to interpret it. We'll get into all the meaning of it next week, but this is what it says. Verse 1, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in, in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. And the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and, the, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. Then Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. you got to love this. Verse 10 says, when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. Because they didn't understand it either. But in the public, they didn't want to show their ignorance. So they wait till they can get alone. Like, Jesus, what does that mean? We have no clue what you were saying. And he told them. Verse 11, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. Now, Matthew also teaches this parable, and so this is going to be familiar to uh, many of you, uh, but just uh, to whet your appetite for next week, uh, there are four types of soil. 
There's the soil on the path, there's the rocky soil, thorny soil, and good soil. And all four soils receive the seed, but only one is fruitful. Now here's the thing, here's your homework. I want you to go back and read through this parable and and understand it, because here's the dilemma that most people get themselves in. They look at this parable from the standpoint of, what soil am I? Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Mark on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can also download our mobile app. Find the On The Go link under the Teachings tab. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. We also meet on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Cornerstoneconnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. We'd love to meet you, but if you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our 11.45 a.m. service also offers interpreting for those who speak Spanish. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, we'd be honored to talk with you. Send us an email at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but thanks for joining us to study the book of Mark. We hope you'll tune in again here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know But still you know You're not